So the um, so Adam mentioned, you know, this seems a little bit far from the th the normal haunts that I inhabit when I'm buried in the library doing research. And in fact, the problem comes up for, for me uh, from a puzzle that appeared in my very first philosophy class that I ever took as a freshman. Um, so this has been a, a, a question that I've had for a, for a long time that I've been sort of trying to work out and thinking if Aquinas can help us reflect on this issue. Um, and, the, and the problem came up basically when I was studying, as, as one does in one's first philosophy class, the notion of telos, or the notion of intrinsic good or intrinsic goal. And the telos, this comes from this Greek word, telos, um, and it gets translated over into English philosophy. And uh, the, the basic idea is that everything has some state or condition or activity that completes or fulfills it that explains what the thing is for. And if we use the metaphorical language of happiness, extending it out beyond simply human beings and extend it to other things, we could think of the telos as the condition of the thing's happiness. So when you achieve your telos, when a thing achieves its telos, it achieves fulfillment. And uh, so we, we can talk a lot. People usually, when they're thinking about Teloi, they start with artifacts. And so we can think about, for instance, a book. What is the telos of a book? It's to be read, to communicate knowledge. And so we can see that, see the idea of completion or fulfillment here, that something is missing if the book just gets put on a shelf and nobody reads it. Something that scholars worry about all the time. There's a, it's an unfulfilled book. It's an unhappy book that has not reached the completion of what it is for. So you can do this all day, and one likes to do this sort of thing, you know, th contemplating the teloi of artifacts. Um, but sooner or later, one asks the question, well, what about things in the natural environment? So what about a chicken, for instance? What is the telos of a chicken? And I remember in that first philosophy class, we were having this discussion among a group of students, and some clever soul proposed that perhaps the telos of a chicken is to be chicken soup. And the state of happiness, what a chicken is for, what completes it, is to be in my soup. And apparently, someone just sent me this photo recently. Apparently, Burger King thinks the same about potatoes. <laughs> the completion or telos of a potato is to be a French fry. Um, and we can extend this also to things beyond food, of course. You can ask yourself, what is the telos of a tree? And perhaps someone might say, well, there's all sorts of tremendously noble things that can be made out of a tree. For instance, a violin. And imagine the noble state of this tree when it is transformed into an instrument upon which one can play a Tchaikovsky violin concerto. That's the happiness of a tree. And that seemed to me to be very plausible in my, um, as I was thinking about Aristotelian teloi. And until I had the, I have a thought, there's a, there's a kind of problem here, because what happens to the chickens that aren't made into soup, or the trees that don't become violins, or the potatoes that just grow and reproduce? And it seems like on this account, they're not going to have reached their state of fulfillment. They're just sort of out there in the world waiting for someone to come along and use them. So I started to worry about this. What do we do about, with these things that are not transformed by human activity. And as I was reading Aquinas more, I realized that there's actually a very different thing that I hadn't realized as a freshman. There's a very different notion of telos, that he would give a very different answer to the question, what is the telos of a chicken? Um, and his answer is simply 
to be a chicken well, to do chicken things well. And so that's the idea that natural things have a, they are ends in themselves to some extent. They have their own innate perfection and they are completed when they reach that perfection, living as a chicken in a good chicken way. So now that creates problems for the soup because it looks like if we take the chicken and we make it into soup, we've eliminated the possibility of its reaching its natural telos, which is to do chicken things well. And now the soup turns out to be in competition with that perfection of a chicken. So that created a, a problem for me that I spent a long time puzzling over. One of the, It looks like we've got two options here. One of them is that the natural world finds completion in our creative activities. The chicken ought to be soup and is completed that way. But the other option is, seems to be that our creative products aggressively destroy a world that already has a perfection in itself. Um, and so how should we think about this kind of activity? Because any exercise of human creativity is necessarily going to be working with objects in our natural environment and repurposing them into ways that conflict with the intrinsic end of the, ch of the chicken or the wood itself. Um, so here's what, what I propose to do about uh, for, for the talk. <clears throat> First, what I'm going to do is isolate the cultural, two cultural influences that shape our thinking in the background about this topic today. And one of those is a view of human beings as masters of nature, and the other one is a view of human beings as sort of operating in a perfect world as kind of parasites or damagers of nature. And then in the second part of the talk, I'm going to look at what I think Thomas Aquinas has to say about this and what kind of alternative he can propose to us to reconcile these, these two competing positions. And I'm going to argue that he presents us with a Christian alternative that we can call the view of human beings as gardeners. All right. So, so what is our place in the natural world? So let's look at a couple of the answers that have developed over the centuries. If we turn back to the year 1614, the, one of the fathers of the scientific revolution is a guy named Francis Bacon. And he writes his vision of human knowledge and what it means to be a great human being, expressing, um, expressing all of the scientific knowledge that a human being could amass in a kind of story or a utopia that he writes about scientists that are collected on an island in this institute that he calls the College of the Six Days' Work. And he describes the, he describes the gardens in this kind of research paradise in the following way. He says, we have also large and various orchards and gardens wherein we do not so much respect beauty as variety of ground and soil, proper for divers trees and herbs. And we make by art in the same orchards and gardens, trees and flowers to come earlier or later than their seasons, and to come up and bear more speedily than by their natural course they do. We make them also by art greater much than their nature, and their fruit greater and sweeter, and of differing taste, smell, color, and figure from their nature. And we see that this is, this is something that's a utopia of the future for him, but this has been realized, in fact, in um, industrial farming and genetic engineering and selective breeding and things like that. And many of them we so order that, as that they become of medicinal use. We also have means to make divers plants rise by mixtures of earth, 
without seeds, and likewise to make diverse new plants differing from the vulgar and make one tree or plant turn into another. I think there's a very telling comment here. He says that human art makes nature, or things greater than nature does. The, the art of the, of the researcher makes fruit sweeter and healthier and more useful to us and even creates new species. And so Bacon's vision of the world here is that we start out with things that are kind of in an unfinished or un incomplete state. And then human beings come in, and it's sort of our job to improve them and make them greater than they are by their nature. And, it's, and what's, what's noticeable, too, is the way that he thinks about these gardens. Um, a garden is something that particularly has this cultural re resonance of a place where we enjoy the scenery and uh, where we can refresh ourselves. It might be beautiful. But he never describes the gardens in those terms. In fact, he goes out of his way to say that the gardens, we do not respect their beauty. They're not gardens for appreciation. They're gardens for manipulation and learning how to control nature. And I really love the size of the strawberry here in the lower right-hand <laughs> corner. We haven't quite gotten strawberries that big, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't taste like anything if we did. Oh. All right, if we fast forward a little bit to the mid-1600s, we would find the famous John Locke, also describing nature from a similar perspective. He describes <coughs> nature as a wasteland apart from human, human labor. Um, so, for instance, his, his vision here is that an acre of waste land is worth little because its useful product is limited to a few bushels of roots and berries, but when it's cultivated, then it becomes valuable. And you see, the notion of value here is the value of its, the products it can give for human consumption. So, again, nature is a kind of foreign wilderness, something incomplete that needs to be improved and perfected and conquered even by human art. Bacon and Locke exemplify what can be called the mastery and dominion view of nature. And for these authors, the natural world is a kind of wilderness or laboratory or warehouse of raw resources waiting for us to come in and complete it. And the mastery and dom dominion view has a boundless confidence in human ability to improve. Um, we can make things be whatever they want and transform them completely beyond what they are in themselves. And I always like to, to think about how this, the, these kind of attitudes are exemplified in um, art and architecture of the time period. And it's hard to think of a more perfect example of this ideal than the sort of style that was popular in formal gardens at the time, where you can really see every plant, every green thing in this space has been transformed and subjected to a vision of human rationality. But by the mid-18th century, you start to see a reaction against this mastery and dominion view setting in. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the philo philosophical founders of the fathers of the French, Reforma uh, French Reformation, French Revolution, um, he writes with great longing about a time when human beings lived a hunter-gatherer life and were not polluted by the contributions of society. So he's really starting to think about society, human rationality, as things that hold us back from being our true selves. Um, Kant argues that what's primarily beautiful are natural wonders like mountains and hills and forests. And he says, if you go to an art gallery, well, there's no art galleries at the time, but if you go to admi uh, admire art somewhere, 
Um, and you say that the art is beautiful. What you really mean is it evokes in me the same feeling of sublimity as when I go out to nature. So nature is really where the paradigm of beauty is. There's a shift in landscaping trends along with all of this. And you can see the rigidity of the former, former era giving way to a much more naturalistic approach. <coughs> and all of this is a sort of early herald of a, of a movement that some of you may know of as Romanticism, um, which really gets going in the 19th century as a response to the Industrial Revolution. So the artists of the 19th and early 20th century are particularly worried about the threat that human creativity and industrialization poses to the pristineness of nature. So as the English economy is being galvanized by the power loom and the steam engine, you have Wordsworth rhapsodizing about wandering in the fields of golden daffodils. Later, you have Tolkien with his concerns about the scouring of the Shire. The party tree is cut down. There's this tension between nature and, um, and, in and industry. And the art of the Hudson River School reminds the viewer that human creations fall apart and into decay while the majesty of mountains and plains and rivers remain. So if we look around us today, we can see that we've inherited elements of both of these approaches. Um, on the one side, we still think of nature as something to be manipulated and conquered. And we see this attitude particularly evident in biotech, in medicine, and the interest in transhumanism in film and literature. Um, and there's a great deal of excitement around these technologies as finally letting us live as human beings the way we want to live. And not a lot of thought about what the underlying nature is that's being changed. On the other side, there's also um, a strain of deep concern about the effects of human intervention on the natural environment. So we have environmental disasters that have made us increasingly sensitive to the unintended consequences of our activity. And there's a real sense, especially if you fly in an airplane and you look out over a city and you really ponder the extent to which the landscape has been fundamentally transformed by human habitation. It's very striking to reflect on the effect that we have. Um, and in some, in some sense, this, ha this has developed into a widespread cynicism that spurs some scholars to argue that, in fact, human beings are a parasite upon the natural landscape and that the world would be better off without us. And I think it's interesting that these two, cult these two influences are so culturally intertwined because you can see that I think, I think we, we have them in such a way that we'll use one insight in one, in one area and then another insight in another area. And we don't often think about how to reconcile the two, um, sometimes regarding ourselves as masters and sometimes as parasites. So let's see what Aquinas might have to say about all this. And what I suggest is that we could ask Aquinas, we could sort of begin to get some insights into how to uh, think about our place in the natural world by beginning at, to ask Aquinas, what exactly is the natural world? What is this place in which we find ourselves? And Aquinas' answer is, that, is to offer us a fundamental vision of the, of the world of creatures as an image of the creator. 
Now that's what it means to be, as a creature is to image the creator. So for Aquinas, God is the source of being. The act of creating is the act of bringing into existence and holding in existence things that are dependent. And when God brings things into existence, he gives them a limited reflection of himself. There isn't any other way for a creature to be except as an image, a reflection, a likeness of the creator. So he says, each and every creature bears a likeness of God in its existence and in its nature, which gives it a certain perfection. It's quite a remarkable statement. That's everything. It's trees and chickens and caterpillars and little rocks on the bed of a small river. Each of those things is a limited reflection of God. And for Aquinas, that gives each thing a sort of special dignity and importance of its own. <coughs> so for Aquinas, we can think about the world as a kind of, as a whole, that provides a dim reflection of God with each creature offering a little puzzle piece so that they all kind of fit together to put into one complete picture. And so we can unpack this idea of God bringing into existence images of himself in terms of two rules that God holds himself to creating. And so when I say rules, I don't mean to suggest that God has some sort of moral law that he's following or something like that. Um, all I mean is that these are ways of describing what God is doing when he creates, according to Aquinas. So first, for Aquinas, God creates beings that uniquely reflect his own divine being. And each thing has an integrity and a wholeness and a goodness of its own. God does not create like a child rearranging Lego blocks. You've ever seen a child sort of playing with Lego. It's the infinite arbitrary rearrangement of the parts. But that's not how God creates things. A chicken is not an arbitrary arrangement of parts. It's a limited reflection of the divine being. And it's imaging God in the way that only chickens can do. And as a result, that's why Aquinas can't agree with Bacon and Burger King and Locke that the telos or the goal of things is to star in our creative productions. A chicken has goodness just in being the best chicken it can be. It's already glorifying God in its chickenness. So Aquinas also can't put that. Yeah, so Aquinas also can't agree with the fundamental claim of the mastery and dominion view that the world we find ourselves in is a kind of warehouse of raw resources for our transformation. God doesn't create things incomplete and then say, hey, human beings, go finish it up for me. I left some things for you to do there. Um, for Aquinas, that's simply not the case. What God makes, he makes good and complete in its own being. <clears throat> The second uh, rule or description of the way that God acts in creating is this. God creates and cares not only for individual creatures, but also for the whole interconnected system of the universe. So when God gives each being its nature, each nature is a kind of puzzle piece shaped 
to integrate with the other pieces of the other kinds of things that exist. So if we think about an oak tree, it has a good in itself just to be oak, but part of being oak is to have branches that are a good shape for harboring the nests of birds and leaves that provide shade for small creatures and wood that is suitable for making violins or for nourishing the forest ecosystem when the oak dies and begins to decay. So according to Aquinas, this is why God allows the destruction of one creature for the sake of another. He says many good things would be taken away if God did not permit evil to exist. For the life of a lion, he says, would not be preserved unless the antelope were killed. So the idea here is that the full maturity and perfection of a lion requires that the lion eat an antelope. And this is bad, of course, for the antelope. But it's very good for the lion. And the goodness of the lion is part of the goodness of the whole. Something would be missing from the system as a whole if there weren't lions imaging God in just the way that lions do. Um, so we might say, now here I want to, I want to ward off a possible uh, misinterpretation of this claim. We might say, okay, Aquinas, I see what you're saying here. You're telling us that there's a kind of necessary evil that's built into the structure of created reality. Things compete over limited resources, and so in order for there to be both of these things, we have to just accept the evil of the death of the horse or the antelope in order to have lions. Um, and that's not quite Aquinas's view, in fact. He makes an interesting distinction that I think hasn't been reflected on sufficiently. And what he says is that any creature actually has two ends, or teloi. There's a primary telos, which is to live the horse life, for a horse to live the horse life well, to do well the activities of the kind of being that you are. But because each of the kinds of creatures go to make up a whole that is good in its completeness, each thing also has a secondary telos of, completing, of contributing to the goodness of the whole. So that means that when we ask what completes a horse, for Aquinas, there's two answers to that question. We can say primarily and fundamentally, the horse is completed by living the horse life well. But secondarily, the horse is completed by contributing to the goodness of the whole. And now there's ways, of course, that a horse can do this without getting eaten. It can contribute by, um, well, what else could a horse do besides getting eaten by? No, well, it could, it could get ridden, for instance, by human beings, or it could just gallop across the tundra or wherever horses originate um, and do its horse thing by contributing to the horse portion of its ecosystem, perhaps by fertilizing the area with its droppings and things like this. Um, but if it's, so it can, it, it's possible for, a, for an animal or any sort of natural creature to satisfy both of those at once, right? But there are cases in which the two come into conflict. And so when they do, we can still say that when the horse is eaten, it's not satisfying its primary telos. It's bad for the horse. Um, it loses. It's not complete as a horse because it's being eaten. But it does, to a certain extent, as a secondary goal, complete its telos of contributing to the goodness of the whole. 
All right. Now we can think about where human beings fit in this creaturely image that the universe provides, uh, reflecting God. According to Aquinas, the human way of reflecting God is to reflect the creative thought by which God brings the creaturely order into existence. So the image of God would not be, in, in, in creatures, would not be complete without something to reflect the creativity of the moment of God's bringing things and holding them into existence. That's quite a remarkable claim. And right away we can see an important implication. What that means is that for Aquinas, there's going to be a kind of authenticity about the exercise of human creativity as part of the creaturely image of God. In fact, the universe's created image is not complete without our exercise of creativity. That gives us a place for chicken soup and violins and this lovely medieval lady painting her self-portrait. Um, her name is Irene, apparently. So pictures of Irene are part of the goodness of the whole. And now we see that in order to flourish as humans and in order to exercise our innate creativity, we need to use other creatures in order to have these, uh, in order to create these products. And in using them, as we saw, we prevent them from attaining their own primary end of living well as the things that they are. But as we saw already, you can sort of see how the solution is going to go here. From Aquinas' perspective, this is not something that's unique to human beings. It's something that is the case for everything that exists in the natural world. Each thing needs to use other things to promote its own good. And so human beings do the same thing in relation to creativity. Um, so we can say the same thing about the chicken as we did about the horse being eaten by the lion. Uh, when a chicken is just being a chicken, well, it is fulfilling its telos. When it's in my soup, it's not fulfilling its primary telos, but it is fulfilling its secondary telos. So it's completed by being a part of my soup to a lesser extent. It's always to a lesser extent for Aquinas, is an important caveat. And there's another caveat here, if the soup is a necessary ingredient in human flourishing, which we're going to come back to. So this might be sounding quite rosy, and there's going to be another side to the whole thing, which we'll get to in a second, but I think it's important to spend a moment emphasizing the authentic place for human creativity here for the following reason. Um, it seems to me that a lot of environmental ethicists would be very willing to concede, using this kind of argument, that it is justifiable for us to use, hum uh, use products of the natural world, or substances in the natural world for our creative products. If what we mean is products we need to survive, we need food, we need shelter, we need warmth. Um, and so I think there would be quite a lot of enthusiasm around using this model to justify humans exercising the kind of creativity they need just in order to survive. But a great deal of resistance to the idea that human creativity, what is in, in the sense of what's over and above merely the ingenuity we have to exercise to survive, there are re resistance to the idea that that's actually something that we can authentically bring to the natural world because it seems superfluous. Um, use of resources that we don't just need 
for survival. Right? <clears throat> and what Aquinas proposes instead is that human creativity in this sense of superfluity is actually part of being a good human, flourishing as a human being, and that's actually part of what completes the image of the creator in the world. So we could think of this or summarize this in terms of the claim that humans are artists or creative beings by nature, and that the exercise of creativity is, in fact, part of who we are and how, what our contribution is to the completeness of the whole. Well, this sounds very nice for humans so far, but there's also another side to this coin that must be mentioned. And it's this. Although we mirror the creator's creativity, we nonetheless do so as parts of a creation that already images God. So in other words, humans are not working in a world that is our own. Whatever we handle, whatever we use, whatever we transform, already has the distinctive characteristic of reflecting and glorifying God in its own being. Um, and this, I think, should be a terrifying thought to us, because other creatures, when they use each other, when the lion eats the antelope, they do so without being able to reflect on that fact. But we're the creatures who can see and reflect on the fact that other creatures and ourselves image the creator. And that gives us a responsibility in using other creatures that no other creature has. So does Aquinas tell us anything that can help us fulfill this responsibility appropriately? And I'm going to suggest that the two rules of divine artistry, the descriptions of God's activity, helps us sketch out from Aquinas' perspective two roles, subordinate roles for human creativity or artistry in the natural world. And they express our status as creatures that reflect divine creativity in a world that God has already created and pronounced to be good. So remember the first rule here was that God gives creatures an internal dignity and completeness of its own. <laughs> If we look at how Aquinas describes create human creativity in his writings, it's something he mentions from time to time. He doesn't treat it systematically, but he brings it up in little examples. And one of the, one of the cases, he says, in which human creativity can contribute to the natural world is, quote, to assist nature. And he says that the human artist, by which he means someone who's exercising any kind of ingenuity, imitates nature and steps in to remedy the defects of nature. Now that sounds like Bacon. Things are incomplete and we have to complete them. But in fact, he denies that things are incomplete, needing our completion. So we can understand, well, what is he talking about here? And we can understand if we look at his example a little more closely. The paradigm case for Aquinas of this kind of assisting of nature is the art of medicine. And he puts it this way. The human body already has a kind of nature of health that's proper to it. And it has its own intrinsic dynamism and its own processes whereby it brings about in itself health. The role of the doctor for Aquinas is not to sort of induce health in the body from the outside, but it's to act as an assistant to the processes of the body, that the body already has to bring about its own natural flourishing. 
So the doctor for Aquinas does not sort of work on the body like a kind of machine to be tweaked, but is instead supposed to be attentive to the way in which the body is striving for its own internal goodness and assist that process as much as, it, as much as possible. And that's what medicines are supposed to do. He has all these sort of theories about you know, how the, the heat, you, you, when you have a fever, the body is trying to um, purge itself of various illnesses. And so the doctor observes these processes and tries to support them as much as possible in the different kinds of techniques that are used. Um, you could also give the example of gardening for uh, assisting nature in this sense, the, uh, when a gardener weeds or prunes or irrigates. Um, this is not transforming and changing nature, but supporting the plants in the garden to be the best that they can be. So this image of human creativity as ministering to nature is quite striking. It suggests that in this first role, the, the status of the human uh, artist is supportive rather than masterful respectful of a being's natural dynamism toward flourishing. So I think we can draw some concrete implications from this. It suggests that Aquinas might want us to distinguish between creative activities that assist and support and distinguish those from creative activities that manipulate nature in, order to th in ways that thwart nature's intrinsic goals. So for instance, we could draw a line between, say, breeding milk cows in a way that promotes their being the best cows they can be as opposed to practices of breeding or genetic engineering in such a way that cows are made to give more milk but become in the process worse cows, much more liable to infection or are not able to support their, uh, their weight upon their legs and things like this. Now in the first case, the breeders are working with the cow's natural tendencies towards cow flourishing. In the second case, the breeders are working against the cow's natural tendencies towards cow flourishing as though the cow is an arrangement of parts to be manipulated. So I think that might be a concrete application of this. The second rule that we saw is that God pays attention to the good of the whole in allowing one species to use another. And this corresponds to another sphere of human creativity that Aquinas mentions, which is the case in which we don't just assist nature, but we bring about new products that were not there before in the natural world. Um, now, this adding of something new, so when we add a violin or a bowl of soup or a musical composition or a particularly well-decorated house, it's all things that you can add that are new. And these are justified, as we saw, because human creativity is part of the goodness of the whole. But just as it is justified in relation to the goodness of the whole, so too it is constrained in relation to the goodness of the whole. These are always, for Aquinas, the flip side. There, there's always these, these two sides. If you justify an activity in terms of some principle, that principle also serves as a constraint on that activity. It's only justified as far as the principle goes. So what justifies the promoting of human artistry is that our creativity is an essential part of the goodness of creation. But since it is the image of God's creativity and therefore an essential part of the goodness of creation, that means it has to be exercised with attention to the good of the whole. And that's what corresponds in us to this uh, way that God acts, which is to act in providence for the good of the whole. So here, to justify a human project, it's, just nev it's never enough on this principle to say humans need it and therefore it's fine. 
But Aquinas, we always have to be asking the question, how does this activity relate to the whole context? How does it impact the, the build a mall or something like that? How does it impact the environment that it's in? Are there ways that it can be done better or worse? These are all questions that I think on his view we were morally obliged to ask because we're part of this bigger whole, which image is gone. Um, and, and, and an example of this is something that happened to my dad when he was gardening. Um, so he, he got from some friend at work this thing called a passion flower. I don't know if anyone has ever seen this. And they're extremely beautiful. They have these huge blossoms, and they grow very quickly. And he was very enthusiastic about this thing. He planted in various spots. And then I came back the next year, and I said, where's the passion flower? It seems to be gone. And he said, oh, I had to rip it all out. It was growing so fast, it just was choking everything completely out. And so there he's exercising the kind of attention to the whole that I think Aquinas has in mind. No matter how beautiful or good something is, it's always part of a larger picture. And so its goodness has to be framed in terms of that larger picture. So let me conclude by laying out somewhat more concretely a framework for what a Thomistic environmental ethics might look like. And Aquinas, like any virtue ethicist, doesn't offer us a set of clear rubrics where we can just sort of put in the ant, put in the problem, turn the crank, and get a solution to come out. Instead, what he gives us, I think, is a set of goals or ideals that we should strive for in our actions, using prudence to figure out how to apply them. And each of these principles places a sort of ethical limit on human action within the natural environment. So the first principle, I think, that he would offer us is respect. The act of improving other creatures or ourselves, improving, should, respect, should recognize their and our intrinsic natural ends. So each thing that we encounter has an intrinsic beauty and goodness and worth of its own as a thing with a nature in its own telos. And so when we practice medicine or breed show roses or more productive milk cows, we should do it in a way that cooperates with the, na the nature of each thing to help them flourish more fully, not by manipulating them into a stunted version of themselves that delivers a product we prefer. Second principle is authenticity or authentic use. And this is, this is I think, an interesting kind of constraint. So only true human flourishing can be the legitimate secondary end of any creature. So we can legitimately use, on Aquinas' account, natural beings for creative endeavors that promote true human flourishing, but not just any purpose whatsoever. And so framing this whole discussion, there has to be a complete picture of the human being flourishing as a bodily, artistic, social, intellectual, ethical, spiritual being. And the use of products in the natural environment are ordered to our use, as they're ordered to the use of other things, precisely for in service of human flourishing. Um, and that means that any use of those products in a way that does not promote human flourishing is, in fact, that does, for Aquinas, count as an act of violence. That's a violation of the nature of the thing. Its secondary end is not to serve other things to do whatever they want. It's to serve the good of other things in relation to the whole. So if we put it more starkly, the father of the prodigal son 
can kill a fatted calf to celebrate his son's return home. But to break a branch off of a tree to strike someone with in anger would be an act of violence against the nature of the tree. So the third principle is the expanded outlook. This is paying attention to the good of the whole. And so like God, the divine artist, we too, in the exercise of our creativity, are called to exercise that attention to the entire context. And what this means varies by situation. Perhaps we need to clear some land in order to build an, a structure that's important to human flourishing. Um, if we do that, we should think about where it's going, what kind of ecosystem it's disrupting. Are there ways of building it in that, that would integrate it better into the environment that it's in? Um, what does this activity contribute to the order and harmony of the whole so that all of the beings can flourish to the greatest extent possible? And fourth, humility. It's important that we remember that we're images of the creator. We're not creators. And we've seen that Aquinas justifies human creativity precisely to the extent to which we're images. But that's what we are, reflections, images, participants. We're not replacements in our stewardship of the natural environment. We're not replacements for God's activity as creator. God continues to be present, working in nature and us in the divine, as the divine artist. And this is perhaps the most important reason for restraint and humility in our creative activity. We're plants that help to tend the garden, part of a whole that can, transcends us, contributing to the life of a universe that is full of the presence of God. So at the end of the day, if we ask Aquinas, does art perfect nature? In one sense, he would say no. The natural world is not an unfinished warehouse of raw materials that God has handed over to human beings to complete. That's what he says in this quote on the left. In another sense, he would, could say yes, in the sense that there is room for human creativity in creation as an essential part of the goodness of the whole. If there's any sense in which God has left the universe unfinished, it's that in creating creative beings, God leaves the actualizing of creative potential in our hands. In a sense, the universe as a whole awaits our artistic contributions to round out the completeness of the image of God. It awaits Mozart singing and campfire singing and fine champagne and good home-cooked dinners and well-planned cities. It awaits gardens. It awaits all these artistic works that image the divine intelligence working in the universe. And in order to be up to this challenge of the role that we have, we need to cultivate an eye for beauty, not merely pursuing what is useful, but also rejoicing in what is beautiful in art and nature, as God rejoiced in the goodness of creation on the seventh day. So perhaps a fitting way to end would be to go back to the beginning, to the garden. I want to suggest that in a Thomistic vision of environmental justice, a certain kind of gardener can serve as the model for the ethical exercise of human activity. Not the super scientist gardener of Bacon's paradise for whom the plants are like so much Play-Doh to be molded into whatever we please, but more like the original gardeners who were both the adornment and the caretakers of the original garden. But the Lord God had planted a garden of pleasure from the beginning in which he placed the human whom he had formed. Therefore, the Lord God took the human and put him in the garden of pleasure in order that he might work in it, operaret, 
in the Latin Vulgate that Aquinas is reading, and look after it, custodiret. Is it any accident that the writers of Genesis describe God's act of creating the world as an act of planting a garden in the very same ground from which human beings themselves come into existence? Or that in setting human beings to look after creation, God calls us to be gardeners? Thank you. So for questions for uh, Dr. Corey, so I'll let her field her own questions, but uh, begin the conversation. Yeah. Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, I, I guess I find myself wondering, you know, we live in an age of ecocide. We live in a time when more creatures are being destroyed by human use than sort of the background biological rate of extinction. Um, it's a, sort of a massive extinction happening. Um, and so we live in a time of just, um, I, mean, we, we, I guess another way of putting it is we're, we're habituated in our lives in various and complex ways into the master and gardener, yeah. master perspective, right? We don't, we don't stand outside and decide which one we like best. Like, we, we're already yeah. habituated into one. And so given that, if you think that that's true, how do we, sort of moving towards the gardener picture requires much more than sort of the individual choices on our parts. It requires mm -hmm. massive transformations in the way we live. Right. right. A kind of social, eco economic critique as well yeah. that would sort of accompany this, right? Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. And um, yeah, in terms of, where our minds are in thinking about the natural world, I think it's absolutely the case that the mastery and dominion view is just part of the air we breathe. And it's part of the enthusiasm that we have when we read about new technologies and things. We don't think about the potential implications. They're, they're not as present to us as they should be, I think, from, from Aquinas' perspective. Um, so it's very, it, in, in a way, what, what Aquinas is giving us is these really big picture kind of values we can strive for. And then if we say, okay, on the ground, here and now, what kinds of things can we do? I mean, it's a big start, I think, to reorient our thinking in terms of what is our place exactly in the natural world. And it's so hard for us to do that just because of the socializing that we have. I think that's an enormous first step that can be taken. But then after that, you know, what, what kinds of concrete things can be done in order to sort of bring about a better social awareness and social change around these issues. I mean, these are sort of things that Aquinas is not going to tell us how to do, but in, um, in each society, these are sort of be a kind of moral obligation, I think, from this perspective, given who we are and the place that we have in, in, in nature. Yes? Thanks very much. It's great. Uh, two questions. First of all, where does where does does Thomas do this? Is it at the end yeah. of Primapars when he's talking about creation, or so? In order to put put this together, I've had to. I can I give, yeah, I can, so I can give you some of the text if you want to follow up on this. So it's scattered all over the place. There's a there's a chunk of text that's important from the middle of the commentary, uh, the Summa Contra Gentiles, when he talks about the order of uh, order of creation and the place of intelligent creatures in the order of creation. Um, and then there's also scattered references to the relationship between art and nature and the use of this, this language of min the minister, the doctor, and the teacher as ministers of nature in their craft. Um, 
And so there's there's basically scattered references that you can sort of take and put together into a whole picture, but I can okay, give those great. to you if you want. Yeah. Secondly, does Thomas give us any help on navigating other than sort of generic prudential decisions about those moments where the whole is contested such that um, is it the good for the whole that the conservation of the forest is preserved or that the good of the whole of the logging families and communities who are right who draw I mean does Thomas help us sort of navigate those prudential decisions well I mean this is a this is a general challenge for virtue ethics and even natural law type theories is that in the concrete application there's an enormous reliance on prudence such that people well-intentioned people can disagree about exactly how things how a rule is to be applied um, and so in that respect it's a it's a sort of it's a, something about the whole the ethical theory as a whole that it doesn't give us a rubric to follow to navigate those disagreements at the level of the concrete and so really for him I think a, a large part of our ethical life consists in the correct forming of ourselves in order to see goods correctly. Um, we can't sort of neglect our ethical formation and our moral vision and then sort of show up on the scene and say, okay, I've got these two choices and what should I do? You just simply won't be able to see it from his perspective. Thanks very much. Yes? Yeah, kind of similar to the end there. It, it sounds almost like the end proposal is a theologically formed or ordered utilitarianism. They think um, humans are the ones who have to figure out yeah. what the greater good is, like you were mentioning. But then, even then, like with the example of gardening, humans are choosing that the food lives over the weeds, mm -hmm. and that's a human-ordered decision. Yeah, Does I think rise above utilitarianism. I, I think it's not quite utilitarianism in the sense that um, so. So some kinds of applications of utilitarianism actually it encourage a great deal of meddling. So for instance, Jeff McMahon published a famous op-ed in the New York Times. He's a, um, a contemporary philosopher. And it's, it's titled, Kill All the Carnivores. And he argues that if we possibly could engineer or just extinguish all carnivores to eliminate suffering, that would be a thing that we would have a moral obligation to do. Um, in order for the good of the whole, right? And for Aquinas, our obligations don't extend towards sort of looking at the world and saying, hmm, what's going wrong and, and sort of reshaping and meddling in that. Uh, meddling is a negative term, so I don't want to beg the question here, but um, intervening in those ways. Um, what we have control over is our own actions and our living of the human life. And so these sort of moral questions come into play when we're asking ourselves, how should we live out our human life, as opposed to sort of going into an ecosystem and saying, what could be better about the way this works? Um, and I think he, he also, it's, it's, it's difficult to, I think it would have been difficult for him to even imagine that human beings could have had that level of power. So he doesn't say anything about, you know, cautioning us to be careful in those realms because it just, I think, had never occurred to him. Yes? Uh, thanks so much. I was, I was particularly interested that you kind of invoked this language of beauty at the end in order to kind of think about um, what authentic uses of uh, nature might look like. Um, and, I, and I read you as saying, uh, so yeah, an authentic use 
can be more than just meeting basic needs. Mm -hmm. Human beings can be more than that. But also, uh, human flourishing, it seems like, also kind of constrains what we think of as beautiful. Mm -hmm. That is to say, something that is just kind of uh, made out of pure luxury, serves no sort of, you know, uh, use toward toward uh, meaningful flourishing. It's not maybe really beautiful. So I, I just, I'm, just, I'm wondering about the relationship between beauty and flourishing and how those kind of work together to determine what, say, a faithful use of nature might look like as opposed mm -hmm. to one that might be perceived to be beautiful but in fact is not really beautiful or something like this. Yeah, so I suppose you one might think of, um, I don't know, an extremely lavish and taste tasteless house or something like this. Um, yeah, I think one of the... It's, it's easy, I think, to, for those two questions of beauty and luxury to sort of get wrapped into each other really closely because beauty is, in a certain sense, something that's very expensive to procure, and so often it becomes something that appears very much as a luxury or is had by the rich. Um, and I think for Aquinas, we want to sort of take those two take those two things apart, that beauty is a sort of factor, a kind of refreshment that the, in, the environment around you offers to you, um, and a way in which we can kind of appreciate order. You know, his notion of beauty is not the sort of later Romantic era notion of beauty in terms of aesthetic sentiment, uh, something that triggers a certain kind of subjective response. Um, his, the way he thinks about beauty is in terms of the order and harmony and proportion of a thing. So that notion of beauty actually has a much clearer connection to the sort of human psychology of how we need to live in an environment that reflects back a kind of refreshment to us. Um, so in that, in that sense, then we can sort of, the, the question of what we need in terms of, of, of beauty isn't even so much a question of art um, as a question of, it, it might be more applicable to things like how do we construct a city on a properly human scale in such a way that we don't feel lost in this sort of wilderness of the city, but it feels like a place that is truly home for us. And those kind of questions, I think, are particularly front and center for him and think that, or would be if he were here <laughs> thinking about beauty. Yeah. Yes. Um, thank you so much. This was really good. I have a um, if you can help me try to figure out exactly where the line goes, basically. So my mom is an avid rose gardener. She like obsessively loves roses. So because of her, I know that there are certain breeds of roses yeah. that have been like throughout the ages bred to be more disease resistant mm -hmm. than the others, for example. And that seems to be perfectly fine um, along the lines with like what Aquinas wants us to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so it seems like, okay, breeding roses to be more disease-resistant resist is fine. Um, but then we try to introduce the notion of, okay, well, if that is fine, then what is wrong with let's try to tweak certain human genes to eliminate right. uh, particular diseases that, you know, certain ethnicities are prone to, like, ovarian disease or what have you. Mm -hmm. If we can just tweak that, then that seems to be we would create... Yeah, human being, not create, like, we will contribute to human flourishing yeah. in a way that, like, the same way that we're right. doing with roses. So are those two cases dissimilar, or is there more similarity than 
Yeah, so um, in terms of the kinds of principles that Aquinas gives us to think about these things, I think that it's possible actually to consider the cases as similar. Mm -hmm. um, that he wouldn't necessarily, so he wouldn't necessarily draw the line. I think when we're, when we're thinking from this, this um, Austrian Dominion view, we sort of look at genetic uh, intervention as being something that's specially problematic um, because it's meddling in a thing's nature. But where Aquinas wants to draw the line is between activities that support what this being is already trying to be and the flourishing that's already specified for it by its nature. And since health is a condition of flourishing for the human being objectively, activities of genetic uh, modification that would promote that, I think, would be within, the, from the sort of theoretical perspective, within the framework of the kind of things that he could admit. Now, whether that sort of activity, whether we know enough about the unintended consequences, right, to go about doing those sorts of things is a whole other question. And he would definitely want us, at, want us to be thinking about that, right? And I think we just often overestimate the amount of knowledge that we have in that respect. Do we have time for another question? No, question. Yeah. Yes, I have a question. Um, he wrote all these uh, rules and principles over 700 years ago. Do you think when he was doing his thinking process and his knowledge, if he was writing this just for his generation, or do you think he actually thought it would keep going through generations, like Rumi, yeah. one of his contemporaries, yeah. is still the best-selling poet? Right. Um, and we, and what he said was uh, applies to every country, every generation, yeah. everything. Do you think Thomas Aquinas believed that his work was going to be that far-reaching, or did, was he writing just for his people, his European uh -huh. little cluster of Christians? Or do you think he thought he was writing for eternity, so to speak? Yeah, so, so, there's a, so there's two issues here. One of them is sort of how he imagines himself yes, as being received. Yeah. And um, the other is sort of what is he trying to do. And so the way he imagines himself, I, I, I don't know that there's any evidence one way or the other as to whether he thought of himself as sort of even founding a school of philosophy or something, um, or of ha having followers. Maybe it would be tremendously surprising to him that we're still talking about him yeah, yeah, in the 21st so. century. Um, but in terms of what he's trying to do when he writes, he's trying to tell us the truth about being. And so what he communicates is intended to be an expression of what reality is as far as he can say it. Um, so it's meant to be something that should be applicable to reflections on the nature of things in any time and place. Um, all that said, he's also keenly because uh, because he's aware that all our knowledge begins in experience. He certainly one would be one of the first people to say, "Well, we couldn't simply let we we couldn't simply take abstract principles and think about them all by themselves without continuously returning to experience in order to refresh and enrich and enhance our understanding of those principles." So it's not like he would say, "Well, there's nothing to be learned from later thinkers." Right, it always our, as our experiences are changing, and as our knowledge even of technology and things are changing, that gives us new insights into how to think about these principles. Yeah. Great. Well, let's thank Professor Corey again.